Welcome back to Love, Life, and Legacy, the podcast dedicated to helping you navigate these hypersexualized times. And this is part two of a two-part mini-series starring Philip Shanker, the great, the one, the only. And did you listen to the last episode? If you didn't yet, go back and listen to it, okay? We, what we're talking about is understanding ourselves on such a deep and intimate level first starting with the problems of how so many of our dysfunctions that we experience today have been created where they started how they extrapolated into different areas of our lives and how it impacts us at present day in our daily lives so that was last week and this week we're going to get into one more layer of how this stuff from the past impacts the things that we do, how we feel and how we interpret the world. That's the first part of today. And then the second part of today is getting into how to heal all this. So this is the climax. This is the great crescendo of this massive amount of valuable information is we can heal and we can change the trajectory of our lives and our descendants lives and everything that comes out of us if we're willing to do this work so please by god's sake for god's sake by god and for god and with god listen to this and listen to it a thousand trillion times okay this is really really important content for us all to be able to heal and find a better day so let's get into it again part two with philip shanker So how does our attachment experience as a child during that vulnerable pre-adolescent period, how do those experiences and the coping mechanisms we learn to use, the style we develop and any wounds that we experience, how does that shape our adult relationships and our adult experiences mentally, emotionally, physically? Well, let's look at relationships because not only do we manage relationships using the attachment experiences that we became comfortable with. And these can create disconnects and challenges in our relationships, but also it, they affect our experiences affect even whom we're attracted to. I want to remind you of the great work of doctors Harville Hendricks and Helen Hunt. They are researchers, therapists, educators, authors, and a lovely couple. And they, the first book of Dr. Hendricks, Getting the Love You Want, describes exactly how the people we are attracted to romantically, there is a often unconscious effect that comes from our childhood attachment experiences. For example, a young woman who had a loving father, but the father happened to be authoritarian, direct, controlling, I'm in charge, my way or the highway, because I'm your dad, because I said so. And she learns and becomes comfortable and learns to be daddy's little girl, and she loves him. And it's very likely that in adulthood, she'll be attracted to a man who has that same feature of confidence, control, authority, I'm in charge. But also, as the book points out, we can use our adult experiences to try and heal wounds from childhood or to try and meet needs that were never met in our childhood attachment experiences and relationships. Now, this is one reason why when we meet someone and are considering emotionally opening up to them and considering a future with them, we hang so many expectations 
upon that person and upon the relationship. And this is true whether we meet them in a club on a Friday night and then we have lunch with them next week, or whether we're introduced to them by our religious community and we're considering being eternal spouses. Either way, we hang so many expectations and hopes and upon our potential partner, expecting this person is going to heal my wounds, meet my needs, fulfill my dreams. I'm going to realize everything I always, solve all my problems of the past and finally be happy. And when we realize that the person we are excited about when we're in that honeymoon period and even the chemicals in our brain are pushing us to see them in a beautiful way and to connect with them. When all that dies down and we realize how different we are, that when we see the challenges and different values and all the real work starts, it can be very daunting. This is a common experience. And also we manage relationships using the attachment experiences, styles, and coping strategies that we became comfortable with. So perhaps you're aware that some people will learn to manage a relationship by guilting another person. Or if somebody grew up in a family where there was a lot of anger, dad blasted or mom was very reactive, we might model that behavior and learn how to manage a relationship with anger, how to control a conversation, how to manage my kids. Or we also may be unconsciously interrupting, never letting another person talk, always wanting to assert our point of view, saying, stop, stop. I've had this experience so many times where I'm talking with someone. I don't want to mention any names, right? But I'm talking with someone who says, okay, I don't want to talk anymore. I don't want to talk anymore. And, okay, fine, fine. I didn't bring this up. No, fine, no problem. We'll talk later. And I become quiet and then that person can't stop talking because what they really mean is I don't want you to talk anymore. <laughs> they want just to be heard. So there's all kinds of ways in which we try to manage our relationships using coping mechanisms, et cetera. And I want to point out three important realities that you might recognize or have experienced yourself. The first is triggers. What is a trigger emotionally? Well, it would be the same as if I'm massaging your arm and I come to a place where there's a bruise or an underlying wound. That place is sensitive. So when I touch it, it's, ow, oh, not so hard. Lay off, right? It's the same emotionally. When you find yourself reacting emotionally in an extreme way, to a loved one, a family member, a friend, or even a stranger in a situation. And what they say just upsets you to an extreme degree. It's likely that underneath it, there is some kind of trigger there, an emotional experience from the past, an attitude, a feeling, a way that you're taking it personal or personalizing it that's worth looking at. A second phenomena that's quite common is called transference. And that's when we take the experiences of a past relationship, often a caregiver or parent, and we project those experiences upon a current day relationship, often a spouse or romantic partner. I mean, I remember myself when I would be so triggered by my wife because she would tell me how to drive, where to park, turn left over here. Oh, I told you to park there. You didn't hear me. I would be going through, or she would explain to me how to do something that I'd already figured out and knew better than her how to do. And I found myself reacting to that so strongly. In fact, that's a reaction I had with most people when I'm told how to do something that I already know. 
that's my perfectionism kicking in, right? I don't like that. So when it was happening with my wife and interfering with my relationship and I was upset with her, I called a friend, my best friend, who also happens to be a therapist, and I asked for a session. And it wasn't 30 seconds, more than 30 seconds into the session before my mom's face popped up. And I began to recognize the fact that I was never able to meet her expectations. There was always a criticism. She had perfectionist ideas for me. And I learned to perform in order for her approval. And that that was affecting my experience of my partner. And that when I worked on those from the past, it allowed me not to completely eliminate the triggering effect when somebody would do that or my wife, but absolutely to recognize it, to own it, to work with it, to manage it, and to not be dominated by it. A third experience is something called projection. And that's when we project not a past relationship upon a present relationship, but my own inner feelings, usually negative insecure, unhealthy feelings, I project those onto another person's words, actions, or attitudes. I read their mind. I think I know what they're thinking and feeling, and it's negative about me, and I'm sure it's them. Or I interpret their words that are innocent or trying to be loving, but they see, feel like criticism to me. Maybe some of you listening had that experience where you were innocently sharing something and a partner got triggered by it and thought you were criticizing or judging or being manipulative or being angry. Now, of course, it's important to look at yourself. This is not when you have some secret agenda or you're trying to get a zinger across or hoping they'll realize you're trying to teach them something and hope that what you're saying, they'll realize something. That's always going to backfire because it's not genuine. This is not when you're being passive aggressive and speaking nice words, but actually really holding, ruminating, hanging on to anger or criticism on the inside, but perhaps you've experienced just genuinely trying to be loving and caring and expressing to somebody and they take it through a negative filter. That's often because of projection. Their own inner feelings of guilt, of self-blame, of lack of self-worth are triggered by their interpretation or their understanding or their feeling of what you were saying and then that becomes something you did to them. These are three things to look at. Now, that does, of course, many relationships are unhealthy and established based upon unhealthy reasons. And of course, the more wounded you might be, the more defensive you might be, the more you use coping mechanisms to manage relationships, the bigger the likelihood that you'll fall into an unhealthy attachment experience as an adult, right? For example, many relationships have a dynamic of one who wants to confront issues emotionally, wants to talk through everything, wants to do it now, even when it's emotional and intense. That's the pursuer. And another, the other partner who wants to avoid, who back off and withdraw and not talk about things and just deals with them quietly. That's the withdrawer. Now, Part of that is influenced by gender because women do have the tendency neurobiologically, right? This is not a social construct. Women do, will feel more resolved, relieved when emotions can be expressed and they can feel heard, when things can be talked out, when there's clarity there, 
and there'll be more doubt and insecurity and questioning if they're not sure how their partner's thinking or feeling. And men will often seek to avoid that and deal with the pressure or deal with the upset or deal with the feelings in other ways. As I said, that's neurobiological. But of course, we all have male and female hormones. We all have masculinity and femininity within us. And so men can be emotionally the ones who want to open and talk and women can be, it can go both ways, right? It also can be affected by coping styles, right? One developed an anxious attachment style in childhood, wondering what the other's thinking. What do they feel about me? Are they going to leave me? Are they unhappy with me? And the other developed a more avoidant attachment style, better to protect myself, get away, etc. So these are how attachment experiences affect adult relationships. Now, there are extreme examples like codependent relationships, where someone who's a classic caretaker or pleaser or has low self-esteem will become an enabler to somebody that's manipulative, narcissistic, controlling, addicted, or abusive. Those are extreme examples. We call those love relationships, but we throw the term love around loosely to describe all kinds of emotional attachments that aren't necessarily healthy, like codependent relationships. Sometimes our bond with another person is a trauma bond, okay? So these are things to understand and look into. Now, there are other areas of our life where our attachment experiences impact us. For example, mental health, okay? What about depression, which is growing in today's society? Anxiety, which is epidemic levels. What about ADHD, attention deficit disorder, which is doubled and tripled in the last couple of decades? Or other mental health issues like bipolar disorder, or obsessive compulsion, these kinds of things, eating disorders. Now, for much of the medical community and the scientific community, these are brain-based disorders influenced by heredity alone. You inherited it. There's a chemical imbalance in your brain. So you take medications which artificially replace the serotonin or the dopamine. They adjust the balance and the symptoms reduce. Now, I'm not a doctor. I would never tell someone to throw away their medication. And these medications do effectively address the symptoms for many people. But addressing the symptoms is not necessarily dealing with the root cause. And again, to look at the great work of Dr. Gabor Mate, whom I mentioned earlier, for example, ADHD, which Dr. Mate was diagnosed with. And so he looked into it. He wrote a book about it. Attention deficit disorder. Is it brain-based? Why is it doubled and tripled in just the recent time as our societies become more chaotic, more unstable, more stressful? Well, studies show that a young person raised in a stressful, overwhelming environment is five times more likely to develop ADHD. What is a stressful environment? Well, poverty, homelessness, parents who have an alcohol or addiction problem or a violent relationship, even a single parent situation, which is not to condemn any hardworking single parent, but it's highly stressful to try and do both roles, to support, to care for the It's extremely difficult. And so when a child is in a situation that's overwhelming, what does he need to do to cope with it? Well, disconnect, distract, turn his attention elsewhere. Exactly the symptoms of ADHD, or perhaps he or she needs to seek attention by being over demonstrative or hyperactive 
And these are exactly the symptoms. And because these are coping mechanisms that are needed at a time when the brain is developing, they become wired in as a default mechanism, right? And medication won't solve those roots. But guess what? Studies also show that if you put that ADHD child in a healthy, supportive, loving situation with understanding that the symptoms can reduce, even disappear. What about depression? Okay. Now, of course, there is something called situational depression, the death of a loved one, the loss of a job, the sudden ending of a relationship, situations that will cause sadness, hurt, and deep depression because of the situation. So situational depression is real, but when it comes to long-term chronic depression, right? I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not qualified to diagnose, but I can say anecdotally that in my 10 years of therapeutic practice and many years as a pastoral counselor before, but especially in these last few years when I understood better, every single person that came to me with chronic depression had the reason, had some situation where they needed to depress their emotions during their vulnerable childhood years. Either they perhaps grew up in a strict religious environment where anger wasn't acceptable. Good little Christians or good little Catholics or good little blessed children don't get angry, right? But in fact, besides the fact that God was angry for two-thirds of the Old Testament, it's also the fact that the message the child hears there is not that good little boys don't get angry, but that angry little boys don't get loved. And so there's a choice to suppress. Or if that little child is told, be a man, don't cry, don't be a baby. Oh, you're too emotional. You're overdoing it. You're making so much out of it. A sensitive child in a family that has learned not to talk about emotions may experience that kind of need to depress. Or with the sibling that has a serious problem, a mental health issue, and needs all the attention. And mom says, I'm so glad that you are such a good boy and you don't make any trouble for me. And the brother gets all the attention and that little boy learns to suppress and always be good. Now, you can't just turn down the bad feelings. There's only a master volume switch. So depressing my negative feelings or holding my emotions causes a disconnect, a grayness of the world, a disconnect from the emotions, which I understand as one of the major roots of depression. And guess what? Every single client that I worked with who had that situation, and I began to teach them to do an emotional check-in every day, discover their feelings. What are they feeling? Had them learn to express what they were feeling, took them to emotional memories where they pushed down their hurt or anger and never expressed it and let them speak it out, even though it's just role play. But when they learn to let that stuff loose or stand up on a chair and stand up for themselves, guess what? Their symptoms of depression began to decline. Every single case, right? Anxiety is another one. It's complicated. Anxiety is becoming more and more common. And it seems to be, from the research of a lot of people, a combination of two major factors. I'm sure there's a lot of things. And situational anxiety is also possible. But one part of anxiety is often the stress response. Now, that's the gift given to every human being and mammals by God, by evolution, however you want to see it, where when we are threatened, when we're in danger, our system responds in a way that awakens our ability to fight, flight, or freeze. 
to fight, run, or hide, or we'll be overwhelmed, right? So that fight, flight, or freeze mechanism, the stress response is to protect us. Now, but for animals, when a predator is approaching, that system kicks in. The heartbeat goes up exactly as in human beings. The blood pressure goes up, rushes with oxygen to the extremities. The oxygen empowers all the muscles and the body. There's cortisol and adrenaline, the hormones of stress being pumped that I can fight harder, run faster, protect myself more. But for an animal, 15 minutes after the predator's gone, everything's back to normal, including the neurobiological system. But human beings, we are different because we have the gift of consciousness, of self-awareness, of thought, making emotional memory and thought more real than reality. And so a human being can trigger the stress response when we feel threatened because somebody is making fun of us or somebody has trapped us in a situation in front of a whole audience or when we have to take a test. I'm sure many of those of you listening, you've had the experience where you're suddenly, you're talking to a friend in class and the teacher calls on you to answer a question because she sees you talking and you didn't even hear the question. You don't know what to say. Or a bully or wise guy shames you in front of your friends in the hallway and you can't think of what to say. You turn red faced, you red faced, you stammer, you feel ashamed, you walk away. And 10 minutes later, you're thinking, dang, I should have said this. I should have said that. You've got all the right things to say. That's because when you are threatened, you go into the stress response. You go down from your conscious, self-controlled uh, neocortex into the stress response, the emotional brain, the limbic brain. You lose 25 points of IQ and you don't know what to think or say. You're frozen because you're in your emotional brain. That's what happens. And it's similar with an overactive stress response. There can be a lot of causes for that, which I'll talk about in a second. So that stress response is one part. The other part of anxiety is then our mind looks for meaning for the threat and the unsafety, the vulnerability that we feel. And we access our thoughts and our thoughts are filled with unhealthy beliefs. Our thoughts are filled with lack of self-worth. Nobody likes me. I can't do this. I'm not capable. And so we start then those anxious thoughts give meaning to, or the unhealthy thoughts give meaning to the anxious feelings. They create more anxiety that creates more garbage thinking. And pretty soon we're overthinking. Our mind is going and we can't turn off. We tell ourselves to calm down and we can't. And that's not going to work, right? There are other things that will work for anxiety, but this is often connected to an overactive stress response and unhealthy thinking, both of which are influenced by childhood or even intrauterine experiences. And I could say a lot more about compulsions and eating disorders, etc. But it's simply wrong to conclude that they're just brain-based hereditary issues. We can understand that the roots, even of mental health issues, are rooted in attachment wounding and emotional experiences. What about physical health? Now, the fact is that every experience we have produces an emotion. And every emotion we feel generates a chemical reaction in the body. It produces something called a neuropeptide, right? Which is a hormone. For example, stress triggers the production of cortisol and adrenaline. There are hormones that are produced by anger, by fear, 
And the reaction that takes place, those hormones go into the body. So the body is affected by our emotional state. And even today, the medical community in the United States recognizes that 70% of disease is emotional. It doesn't mean that disease isn't real, but emotions affect the body. 90% of doctor visits in the United States are related to stress and overwhelm. And we know that stress and anxiety weaken the immune system and allow anything from cancer cells to cold viruses, which reside in the body all the time. But our immune system manages them and they are dormant and they don't react. But when our immune system becomes weak, which is easily done at times of stress and overwhelm and anxiety, right, and panic, then we can be more vulnerable. We also know that positive emotions lower the blood pressure, create a healthier heart, limit weight gain, and a host of other benefits from a positive attitude and healthy feelings. Now, traditional systems like Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine even have an understanding of which emotions affect which parts of the body, how anger goes to the liver and all the systems that the liver fear goes to the kidneys, etc. Your heart, your arteries, everything can be affected by emotions. So that's an important thing to be aware of. Hey, if you're getting something good from this episode, you will probably really enjoy our other podcast, The Blessed Couple Podcast, where we talk about how to create a smashing marriage and experience God in the process. And yes, we talk a lot about sex. We have incredible guest speakers that I think you're going to really love. All you have to do is search for Blessed Couple Podcast on your favorite podcast player or just click the link in the description of this episode. Thanks. Back to the show. I want to talk about one more area of how childhood experiences impact us, and that's in the area of compulsive and addictive behaviors. We already know that almost every addiction underlying it is some form of shame or trauma. And that's often based upon a childhood shame-based experience with a caregiver or a traumatic intervention of my innocent years by a caregiver or some other adult. This is a common experience. And we use a compulsive or addictive behaviors to either comfort our pain, to escape from our pain, or to replace an emotional need that was never met. This is really what's happening. But it's important to understand that we're usually typically using a pleasure-based experience or substance to try and meet an emotional need for happiness, connection, and fulfillment. And the one will never fully fill the other because pleasure and happiness are not the same thing, even though there's a lot of effort in our society to convince you that pleasure, the car you drive, the house you live in, the places you visit, the good experiences you have are going to make you happy. It's not true. Now, pleasure is important. It's crucial. But pleasure is short-lived. Happiness is something that is longer-lived and deeper. Pleasure is based in the body. It's visceral. But happiness is more ethereal. It's based in the emotions, in the feelings, in the spirit, right? Pleasure is something you experience alone, even if you're with other people doing it. Even if you're having sex with another person, the pleasure part of it, the physical part of it, or you're doing drugs with other people, 
It's a self-centered experience. But happiness is about connection, about sharing, about bonding, about feeling seen, about feeling safe and loved. They're not the same thing. They're both important, but they're not the same thing. And when we use pleasure or dopamine to try and meet an emotional need, it's going to create problems. Now, dopamine is important. It's not just the pleasure system. It's the reward system in our brain. And if you didn't have a reward system, you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. Our ancestors wouldn't have either crossed the Atlantic Ocean to create, to reach a new land, or they wouldn't have endured years of slavery and oppression in order to find their own freedom and meet their dreams. Our ancestors wouldn't have crossed the mountains or even wouldn't climb a mountain, reach the top and have that great feeling of exhilaration and fulfillment that you feel when you've accomplished something. That's dopamine. That's reward. That's pleasure. But when we're in a compulsive or addictive experience, we're just pushing that pleasure button again and again and again, and we haven't done anything to earn or to create the release of dopamine. We're just artificially using it to try and meet another need, and that's going to create problems. In fact, dopamine downregulates serotonin, which is involved in happiness. So the more you use pleasure and physical experiences to make yourself feel better, the harder it is to connect with other people and experience genuine happiness. That's a neurobiological fact. Now, compulsive behaviors are not only about substances. What's the first most common thing that we use compulsively? It's food because it's the most accessible, right? So we use food to comfort. We eat our feelings. We develop eating disorders. That's all about emotions and we're trying to resolve them at its root. What's the second most common source of compulsive behavior or area of compulsive behavior? It's sex because we're all running around with this little entertainment system between our legs, right? And when we use pleasure to see another feature of pleasure-based experiences, dopamine-based experiences is that the behavior always tends to escalate. We need more of it in order to meet the need as time goes by. So in the same way that somebody starts smoking, they'll need more nicotine to get the same effect the next time they smoke. It's similar if somebody enters into a relationship with porn, right? At first it's soft porn and simple stuff, and then the need will be to something more edgy, something more bizarre, something more weird, something more strange. And eventually then I feel like I just want to go to some chat rooms and I'm just going to lurk there and, and listen and watch other people. Then pretty soon I think I'm just going to communicate with somebody but when they start to talk to me, I get scared and I shut down my computer and run away. But then pretty soon I'm meeting people and then I'm acting out. And I remember a client I had who started with massages, uh, happy end massages, and ended up with prostitutes and was married with children. This kind of behavior escalates for very good reason, because dopamine, when it's produced and attaches to receptors in our brain, it overexcites the receptors. And the receptors then, in order to protect themselves from being damaged or even destroyed, then they make themselves less available each time. They downregulate and aren't as the dopamine can't find as many receptors. So you need more of the pleasure in order to reach the same benefit. And eventually, when someone's addicted, they have all the need and none of the pleasure anymore. It's just suffering and pain. 
And that's the reality of the human experience. And it's not only substances, you know, after food and sex comes alcohol and drugs and other substances, but it can also be behaviors. We can become compulsive or addicted to social media and all the attention we get. And we can get into TikTok and not be able to stop flipping the screen for two hours, even though we have other things to do. I remember a young man whose wife was pregnant arriving at the bus station and he left her there for an hour and a half because he couldn't get off a computer game. So these things become compulsive and they become replacements for genuine connection, etc. I love the book Unwanted by Jay Stringer, a therapist in Seattle who illustrated from his own experience and his clients that every compulsive sexual experience we have in adulthood is a reenactment of a childhood emotional pattern or it's an attempt to heal a childhood emotional wound. And I have the same experience in my practice. I could give you so many examples of a young man who grew up disconnected from dad and a lot of shame in his childhood and a traumatic experience where his siblings wrapped him in a diaper and locked him in a closet. And then how he began to use that to shame others, male authority figures, teachers, bullies, by picturing them in underwear right? And then he reached puberty and all of a sudden that became erotic. And so his wound was eroticized. His need was eroticized. I have so many examples of someone who was dominated by their mother growing up. Okay. And the mom was always emotionally overwhelming and he felt oppressed. And he saw a Disney movie where the woman, the princess was taken captive and he loved that scene. He got into it. He watched it again and again when he discovered porn, guess what? He liked bondage porn where women are restricted and controlled and dominated, right? And both of these young men wired that into their brains by acting out to that porn during their adolescence. And both of them who came to me with deep wounds, one of them no attraction to women at all, right? They're both married, blessed. One of them has a child. When they had a chance to identify, recognize, express, let go of those emotions, disconnect those roots and express them and be understood, then the wounds and the needs changed. All right, guys. I hope you got a lot out of that. That was a meaty bit of business right there. And now we're going to get into the last part, which I mentioned is all about how to heal. And this is like, honestly, I'm so humbled and I hope that you can find a way to gratitude as well for the fact that we live in a time when this information is available, it's readily available. Before, people just didn't know this. And our prior generations, our ancestors, just had to cope with their dysfunctions as best they could, which in most cases meant drinking or raging or whatever. But healing wasn't so much on the table. And now it is because of the spiritual resources and because of these psychosocial and personal resources that we have access to. So ingest this information and don't forget that information is just the starting point and then doing the work is where the real magic happens. So let's get into this end, this crescendo about healing again in this last section. So I want to finally consider how can we heal attachment wounds and perhaps transform these areas of struggle in our lives and create new and healthier attachment patterns. Well, there are some wonderful tools 
therapeutic tools for self-regulation and for building more resilience, flexibility, and strength, and resolving issues. First, there are neurobiological tools. These are simple tools that just the brain and the body and by physical activities and how we guide our thoughts, we can change our brain state, our emotional state, and put ourselves in a position to heal and grow and change. The first and super effective one is breathing. Now, I don't have time today to teach diaphragmatic breathing, but I will tell you that studies show that diaphragmatic breathing, breathing in through your nose, out through your mouth, smooth and rhythmic, breathing from your belly, not your chest, and elongating your exhale. This will lower your heart rate, decrease your blood pressure, calm your vagus nerve, which is where anxiety is communicated to the body. And most of all, it will bring you out of that reactive brain state and lift you into your neocortex, where you have more oversight, control, awareness, and understanding of your whole. It's like the conductor of your symphony in the brain, okay? So this is powerful, and studies show it's more powerful for anxiety than anti-anxiety medication. Breathing is the first tool to employ when you're feeling anxious or overthinking. The second area is mindfulness, which is simply the action or process of being in the present, not being in the future, which worry and anxiety often lead us to disconnect from the present and focus on the future. Or regret and depression often disconnect us from the present and pull us back to the past. There are so many beautiful tools of mindfulness, even as simple as tasting your food, paying attention to your senses, and breathing is also useful in that. But meditation is a powerful tool as well. And there are different forms of meditation, concentrating on your breathing or using tactile activities or music or mantras or etc. There's so many good ways. Now, trauma therapists in the last decades have developed ways of healing trauma that simply involve going from your left brain to your right brain, having your eyes move back and forth from the left to the right using bilateral music that moves from the right ear to the left ear, and you're listening to it in through buds or something. Now, guess what? Walking is a right-left brain activity. And people like Abraham Lincoln and many great philosophers and thinkers used walking to think, to calm, to reflect, to put their thoughts together. And going back to breathing, how many times have you heard, wait, wait, you're getting upset. Just take a deep breath. Take a few deep breaths. When I do 10 diaphragmatic breaths, by the way, I feel like I've taken a drug. <laughs> I didn't feel these things when I was younger, but my system is so much more sensitive to them now. I feel like my whole head is calmed and cleared. And I mean, I experience that. Walking also, this is one that I love and use. Another big regulator, which our ancestors used, right? They used music, ritual, drums things like that to bring people together, to prepare for war, to resolve trauma, because they didn't have therapists. Right? So they used these things. Another thing that regulated, helped our ancestors regulate, was living close to nature. 
because they woke up with light and went to sleep with dark. They lived with the season. They ate more in the summer when the food was plentiful. They ate less in the winter. They measured their lives by the seasons, and they were therefore intuitively more connected and intuitively perceived things about the stars and astrology and planets that modern society had to rediscover through science. But many traditional cultures understood these things because they lived close to it. Nature, for me, is a huge regulator. Father Moon talked about it for him all the time, how he loved to go to nature, how when his heart was hurt, wounded, when he was burdened, he would go to nature and cleanse his soul. He talked about why trees are green, because green has a calming effect. The harmonies, the rhythms of nature resonate with our heartbeat, with bodily functions, and it's a powerfully regulating thing. You, you just take your shoes off, put your feet in the grass, let the sun shine on your face, do some diaphragmatic breathing. You'll change your whole mindset, right? It's very powerful tools. And another regulating tool for me is music. Do any of you have a piece of music from a time in your life, a summer where you were in love and the love, you lost that love or something sad or happened or you left alone or had a bad situation and you hear that song, you hear that music that came from that time and it takes you right back to all those feelings, right? That's the power of music. Pythagoras had a school. He used a music to heal mental issues, mental health issues, as well as the physical body. Confucius said that music could uplift or corrupt a society. There's lots of details there. And for me, music is so regulating. I don't recommend you use music that brings you back to sadness, but there are harmonious, heavenly, uplifting, healing rhythms, music types. I have so many lists on my Spotify. I welcome anybody. These are all my public lists because Spotify has an algorithm and sends me back more of the music that heals, calms, or I have another playlist that when I'm working and I'm stressed and I'm overwhelmed and I just need a few minutes to get my energy going, I click on my playlist called Dance It Out. And that's a reference to Grey's Anatomy for anybody that is aware. And I turn on Megan Trainer. And I've got certain music, Jerusalem, other things I can think of. And I just dance my butt off in the privacy of my office and get my energy back together. These are powerful things. There are also cognitive tools that are very useful. Cognitive therapy is known to be the most effective for thinking issues. When you're overthinking, when you're anxious, when you're filled with beliefs, that are defeating to yourself, that undermine your happiness and success in life, self-defeating beliefs. Now, these are stories that we tell ourselves. Where did we get them? Well, life taught us these stories. For example, I don't deserve the time or attention of my parents or of people in general. Or if anybody knew me, they'd know I was a horrible person. And so I'm going to keep that all inside. Nobody would really love me if they knew me or I'm incapable of solving my problems or being successful. I'm not like other people. I'm worse than them. And these kinds of thoughts are the things we learned from our life experience in childhood, but they're lies. They're not the truth. And with cognitive therapy and mindfulness, especially, you can change the negative stories that you're telling yourself, right? There are emotional tools, psychodynamic tools. For example, 
using inner child healing, you can access emotional memories from that vulnerable childhood period, including memories that are buried. I don't mean some like dramatic hidden trauma, but just the things that hurt, we put them beneath our conscious level, the subconscious. And we know that 70% or more of our mind is subconscious. It's outside of our awareness. And we put a lot of stuff there. So inner child work helps you access those memories, also teaches you to love yourself more fully, more completely, to be more compassionate, more curious rather than judgmental and critical toward yourself, because that is the only way you can learn to be that way truly with other people. Memory healing is super powerful. If you go to a past memory where somebody abused or didn't hear you or hurt you, even if the memory's not real, even if you see it in a distorted way, if it hurt you in that way and you process the memory and heal your feelings, it changes you, right? If you stand up and speak out, if you tell off that person who shamed you, or if you go and take care of your childhood self and say to your childhood self, what there was nobody there to say to him or her, it doesn't change the past. It doesn't change the people who hurt you, but it changes you on the inside, how you reacted, how you coped, what your way of dealing with it is, and it changes how you then deal with those things in the present. And I've had overwhelming experience of the truth of these things. Also, bioenergetics, using the energy of your body to release anger, to release shame, to release pain, of voice dialogue, so many other tools that we can talk about in more detail another time. But perhaps my final point, something to understand seriously, is that attachment theory suggests that you were wounded in relationships, not by yourself. And so healing requires relationships. You can't fully heal by yourself. Well, I know everything that the shrinks tell us. I'm going to read books and I'm going to work on myself and do it all in my home. I'm sorry. You need to heal in relationship. That's one reason why for many people, a therapist is a powerful, powerful source. Why? Because even though you're paying that person, they look at you with unconditional positive regard. They don't judge you a good therapist. They understand that everything you do is not because you're bad, because you're wrong, because you're worthless, because you're shameful. They understand there are emotional roots and reasons for everything that's going on in your life. And therefore, they can present an unconditional supportive relationship. And building that therapeutic bond is actually, for many people, one of the most important keys to healing, but also having a good support system. Part of the work of changing your life is pulling the weeds of the past. And the other part is planting seeds of new attitudes, behaviors, and relationships. Having mentors, people you look up to and trust. They're like second chance parents. They supplement. And people that look at you and admire you, believe in you, accept even your biggest flaws. Friends who love you knowing who you are. These are important, incredibly. You can't heal alone. So if you're that person who grew up frustrated with what happened to you, saying, I'm never going to do that to my kids, well, if you do your work, you can change your legacy. If you don't do your work, you're going to repeat the pattern. But if you do heal and resolve your inner 
struggles and hurts and traumas and create new seeds and new healthier patterns and relationships, then you can change the legacy for your children and your descendants by the way you live and love. There you have it, everybody. I hope sincerely that you were able to get it all, catch it all. But the chances that you fully retained all that information in one go is next to nothing. So I would highly recommend taking the time to re-listen to this. I know there's so much content out there. And I appreciate the fact that you've listened this far. But for us all, for the sake of understanding our journey, I would recommend giving this whole two-part series a once-over again in order to catch bits and pieces that you weren't able to the first time. So thanks again for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. Hey, everybody, Andrew Love here. And I just wanted to let you know that we have completely revamped our offering known as the Ascend Program. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you know that the Ascend Program has been our flagship porn recovery program for years. And we've added a lot of content, we've tweaked things here and there, but recently we've completely done an overhaul in terms of our approach to recovery. And here's why. You see, originally we tried to appeal to everybody and we just let everybody come in. Anybody who said that they wanted to tackle porn, we just let them join. And there's a very low barrier of entry. But what we found was that a lot of people who thought they were ready to tackle their porn addiction or who kind of wanted to, they didn't always show up in the best way. And they, in many cases, brought the group dynamic down. And so what we've done is we've made the barrier of entry a little higher. And in turn, we've made our offering much more powerful. Let me explain. So when you sign up now, there is a small fee for everybody to sign up, but you get that money back once you finish that quarter. It's in kind of an escrow as a challenge for you to take your time more seriously because if you put money into something and you're only gonna get it back out if you really try, if you really attend your classes, if you really do all the work, then guess what? Your motivation to do that work is much higher. So that's the first thing. Second thing is we are, of course, offering our weekly call groups as a part of the Ascend program. So you'll have your group that you meet with every single week, and that's super important. But in addition to that, you're going to get daily accountability. You'll be able to message with somebody every single day in order to stay on track with your North Star goal. And more than that, every quarter you get two one-on-one -on -one calls with a high noon staff. That is a one-on-one -on -one call where we do a deep dive into where you're at and where you're going. And we help you to diagnose precisely what actions will be most useful for your time, for your energy, so that you can get the biggest results for your energy spent. So we are doing our best here at Highland to make sure that you grow the most in the shortest amount of time. It's all a part of our new roadmap that we've created. Anyway, we've been doing this for a while, but we are always getting better and better. And this quarter, the first quarter in 2023, is going to be monumental. So please sign up for this Ascend program. Take it super seriously and just watch what happens. Watch how your life transforms in a short period of time.